0: I knew when I crashed that one, it was like Brazil. Brazil, I couldn't feel waist down. And the crash in India, I couldn't feel waist down. I knew something was going on.
1: Today on the podcast, we have Scott Goodyear, Canadian guy, IndyCar legend, uh, winning five IndyCar races, finishing second twice at the Indy 500 and most famously uh, in the closest finish ever against Al Unser Jr. there. Uh, He was a factory Porsche driver at Le Mans, going to Le Mans a handful of times. Uh, finishing second in the GT1 and third overall. Uh, He was a color analyst for ABC, ESPN, uh, for the Indy 500 and the IndyCar Series for 17 years. He's he's seen motorsports from almost every angle. He's been in motorsports his entire life, and currently he's the FIA race director of the F3 uh, and F4 USA Championship. Great podcast, Scott is a wealth of knowledge and uh, a, a real professional. Enjoy so I, I guess the first question is did you did you grow up in Toronto, like downtown in the city? Um when I uh,
0: was born, I was really around um moved around a little bit. my parents moved around a little bit, but um even young and Eglinton area uh, for a while, and then uh, probably Keel 401 area for a couple years, as my parents told me. And then uh, when my dad had a house and property there on Ravine, which I guess I enjoyed going down the back hill tobogganing, uh, all the Canadians know that stuff. Uh, and then they this was obviously decades and decades and decades ago. And then they came along with the Cloverleaf for the 401 and 400 and all that sort of stuff. So we sort of got uh, moved out of that whole area, I gather from what I was told, and then um, ended up moving up into Willowdale area, North York, which is Bayview and uh, 401 area and lived there for uh, really all of my life. Um, You know, going through ended up joining into public school there, probably about grade three, I think it was, and then uh, went to junior high and then um, high school and then uh, didn't last very long. Three months into university when I decided I was moving to europe to try and go racing so um, the only one in my family who doesn't have a uh, college or university degree so uh and i remember distinctively coming home and telling my mom that um, as we all do in canadians understand this you do everything over a cup of tea right uh, or probably more importantly today made a tim's coffee anyways it was a cup of tea back then and I said to my mom, uh, Mom, I got some news to share with you. Oh, what's that? I go, I'm uh quitting school. I mean, like I said, I was three years into university at the time, three three months ago. Oh. And then I was um I was going to a point where I just said, um, you know, I'm gonna go racing and all that sort of stuff. So anyways, it was all cool. And then I said, um, I got some more news, and that upset her obviously enough. And Next set of news was I was moving to Europe, <laughs> so you know it was hilarious because um, she said you're crazy. You need to go to school. You need to get an education, which I advocate and actually all of our kids have. That was one of the things for all three three of our kids uh, getting through and getting a degree or two degrees. And um, and uh, she said, yeah, you'll uh, you'll come back and you go to school and uh, you'll you know you have to go to school. And
1: but I disappointed her really badly that time. <laughs> Right. What, are, what were you taking for those three months? I was just
0: going in there in general courses and going through with, uh, and most thing I was taking like public speaking, you know, because that was I remember the one thing that I was sort of interested in. I wanted to make sure I could understand how to, um, you know, get and talk to people and everything of that nature. So I was um, really just interested in getting better business skills. And, um, you know, my dad owned and operated a motorcycle snowmobile business, And uh, so for me, I was um, having the opportunity to understand about business and, and we were um, probably, um, you know, gosh, he was into that uh, Kawasaki dealership, uh, snowmobile stuff, uh, import for so many different things from the United States and China at that point in time. So I um, really was working in the business at the same time. So I had a bit of a business sense and really knew that I just wanted to go car racing. That was the whole thing. Hmm.
1: So how did how did karting start for you? I assume your dad was an eraser.
0: Uh, my dad um, was actually um, he ran late models down at the C and E fairgrounds, and then yeah. he had an old, um, you know, car that uh, super modified, as they call it back then. Um, yep, and it was a uh, Swigo places like that. And uh, in the end result, um, they had a cleaning business in downtown Toronto called Metro Cleaners. It was on Queen Street. And uh, what ended up happening, uh, I got both of his cars stolen off the trailer, or the whole trailer and everything was stolen because it was just sitting out back of the cleaning plant on uh, Queen Street. And he told me, um, you know, because I was obviously very, I think I was probably three or something like that. And um, he said he walked out one day and they were gone never found them again so in the end result uh, he couldn't afford to replace them he was trying to build a business and raise a family and then years later he ended up uh, going to a go-kart track and doing some rental stuff having some fun and bought himself a go-kart and did that locally in ontario Uh, and then in the end result um, i guess we were traveling into new york state just for a bit of a family vacation and he ran across a cart shop um, i think around the avon new york batavia new york area because there's a lot of carting going on at that time and got yep. some uh, performance parts for his uh, go-kart and put them on and made it go better. And then people said, oh, what's that? Where'd you buy that? And then he thought maybe this could be a business. He started bringing that stuff in and selling it on the back of his trailer and then uh, started selling it out of the house. And I remember people coming to our house when I was young, well, before I started carting, um, they were coming and buying stuff on, in the evenings and on weekends and stuff like that. And uh, that my dad was actually in the car business at that time and working for a dealership. He um, closed the uh, car or he walked away from the car business. And um, cause he had sold a cleaning plant well before that. And um, in the end result, um, he uh, started a store and it just grew and grew and grew and ended up, uh, I think we ended up with about probably just under 1200 dealers coast to coast. And that was, um, everything from motorcycle parts snowmobile parts lawnmower parts everything we were the um rc cam Yoshimira, um, pistons and products uh Klotz fuel Weisco pistons Kalamazoo traction products and a host of other things i can not remember we were the distributor for all of canada for all of that stuff we were the official rebuild house for bombardier for all their snowmobile engines that had any problems at that point in time uh, we were the first and only one for a while and then it grew after that Um, and then, like I said, in a Kawasaki dealer, and then I remember, um, he used to get magazines, he was buying stuff from China and I was old enough to remember this and bought and ordered ahead and sent money and all that sort of stuff to China to get a crate, um, container of, uh, mini bikes because they were cheaper than the Rupp mini bikes that were out at that time. So here's an opportunity to make money, right? So we got all this stuff and and they went out the door for, I mean, if a mini bike at that time was $199, I can't remember what the price was, $199. We were selling these ones for $129 because you know you, you already pay anything for China. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, everyone came back with it and we were re-welding frames because all the frames were breaking and all that sort of stuff. It was just like, yeah, I remember him saying that was one of my smarter moves. That was pretty
1: funny yeah but uh um, no, that's entertaining
0: yeah but yeah just a, a ton of um then we had the uh the leading performance machine shop in across canada doing stuff for motorcycles and snowmobiles and and uh everything matter of fact uh, yeah and then got into um you know with all the machinery and stuff like that and i ended up getting through and being machinist when i was younger i just love that mm-hmm. used to build all my own motorcycles and snowmobiles um And then, uh, I started the karting stuff, obviously at a young age of, uh, nine, because you weren't allowed to actually start until you were nine at that point in time. And today, um, gosh, they start them kids' carts where they, you know, the whole dads pick up the go-kart and everything with a kid in it and put it off the trailer onto the track, uh, at about five, I think it is now around here or something of that nature. And then you start competing at seven, going 45 miles an hour. I think it might be a bit too young, but, uh. Yeah, and then started. Uh, I couldn't start until I was nine,
1: so it took a long time. Right, right. And and talking with uh, with Ron Fellows, he was saying when he started karting, just the the difference in karting back then to now. You know, it was, it was such, it was so much more of a grown man's sport back then, right. and you know, you know, and now it's you know if you're not out of carts by 14 or 15, you're behind the eight ball kind of thing. You, know, you really um,
0: are. I mean, it was amazing. And, and that was, he's got that coin perfectly because, um, you know, I remember being, you know, there's a junior classes and they were well attended, especially in the States. And, and when I was carting way back then, um, you know, there was one major carting sanctioning body across really North America. It was called IKF, the International Carting Federation. And, um, you know, we went everywhere from, Bridgehampton, New York to Atwater, California, Jacksonville, Florida. That track's still going because I went there with my son 15 years ago, uh, and obviously all through Canada. Uh, you know, we obviously Goodwood cartways, which is still there. Most part didn't have a go kart track at that time. The other track was in uh, Whitby, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. that track was actually terrific uh, because the Clark family owned it and they built a rental cart track, and that was on its way up to Cottage Country, so it was always just a cart rental track. And then uh, they decided to hold a a race there one time. They held a race once a year for maybe three or four years ago. And it was a a money race, which they started doing way back then. You know, 5,000 to win, 25 for second, 1,000 for third. And, um, I mean, you had everybody coming from the States up to Canada for that. Uh, You know, those names back then, it was, um, you know, Lynn Haddock and Lake Speed, um, uh, Scott Pruitt, Mark Dismore. You know, interestingly, Pruitt ended up getting into car racing, as did Mark Dismore, just like myself. And, and, um, and Scott Pruitt and I ended up being teammates in the Jaguar factory team for the 24-hour Daytona. Um, so it's funny how things sort of go full circle. car. You go different directions and, and what have you. And, um, but you, he coined that perfectly because um, I remember moving into a senior class in Barnesville, Georgia, for the winter nationals and um i guess you had to be i think like 16 i was 15 and something my dad signed me up and uh then you know when you're out there now all of a sudden you're at the front everybody's going what in the world's going on here and then they found out the real age so they got booted out of that and then um yeah but it was very much you were running against uh you know grown men with families you know it was like yeah and and then i come back um Gosh, uh, my son started karting back in 2011, maybe or 10 or something like that. But uh, and then uh, it's just it's just full of uh, kids, junior kids, and we were lucky here in Indianapolis area because uh, Mark Dismore, um, who was karting, like I said, when I was running, his father owned the same type of business as my dad did. So uh, they have the largest karting retail. Facility, uh, sales facility here in uh, outside of Indianapolis, and um, he also built a track here called Newcastle Motorsport Park. Every major karting facility or karting series goes to that facility. super tours the Nats, everything. Um, it's got 80 garages on site, and we had a garage there. You go and you unlock the door, turn the alarm off, and roll the door up and start the cart and drive out like you're in a Formula One track. Pretty darn cool. Uh, He has his own banquet there at the end of every year, which houses almost 200 people for a banquet And his own restaurant that's on site, own parts facility there on site. And then he's got his major shop down the road. Um, You know, we were very fortunate. We got involved in carting with my son, Michael. The thing that was strange for me, I remember getting our carts out uh, when I first started carting with my dad and you'd pull them out and, and with the tires, he said, you know, as long as they're holding air, you're good to go, right? Well, I get involved with my son um, and we get involved in carding and, um, I get there and I get a shock very first time. People are throwing yeah. six sets of tires on per weekend. Um, you know, and I'm going, well, they're not learning anything. If you put new rubber on the time, but it's defeating what we're trying to accomplish here. And, uh, yeah, I, I was flabbergasted. And then it was, um, you know, it was basically, uh, sports parents or hockey parents. It was completely different from what I came from. And um, my oldest son, who's 6'3", very athletic, was playing AAA hockey and for the longest time. And, um, you know, I, I got into, like, the hockey parent scenario. And right. it was like, oh, my gosh. And then we had this karting stuff with my younger son, Michael. And um, it was like no better. The karting people it was just, I thought, my gosh. Um, it was really an eye-opening. And the amount of money parents didn't mind spending was... Is ridiculous, actually, and astronomical. Uh, and I still yeah. see it today with what I'm doing, running our our F4 and our F3 and FR program. Um, I see all these ki- parents come out of karting, and the amount of money they're spending is enormous.
1: No, it's it's certainly changed. I was, I feel fortunate that I was kind of, you know, during my time in karting was the last era of showing up with your dad, and that's it. With you know, maybe a little trailer or in the back of the pickup truck. Yeah, um, but going back to your Your karting career, like you, you know, I assume you were quick right away and you really dominated. Was that where the, you know, thought process came into your head? Like, hey, you know, maybe I can make a living at it. Did you see anyone move from karting and go, hey, you know, there's a real path here?
0: You know, and I get asked that question a lot over the years. Um, I think at that point in time, it was uh, fun to do. And enjoying it, your friends were there all summer because you went up to Goodwood or Georgetown was going at that point in time. Yeah. of course, I mean, there's so many uh, smaller cart tracks around that area before Whitby came on uh, came on uh, play. Um, you know, and then we started traveling to Batavia, New York, Avon, New York. And then we started really going throughout the states. And then in my carting, I started up running for the Margate factory out of St. Louis, Missouri. So I was going coast to coast. Cool. Um, I honestly think Gary, at that point in time, I'm not sure that I had, um, you know, a plan or there's probably, maybe that would be cool. I'm not even sure if I thought about that young as a kid, I think only when I became probably like even 16, 15, 16. Um, and then at that point in time, you know, you're going through school and you're going to think, oh, what am I going to do for a living? And then, you know, somebody goes, well, you know, um, you've got a car for you to drive. There's this people in the industry, Kalamazoo Traction Products, actually, had built a car that was running on a little oval circuit in Michigan. And um, my dad got me a ride. We went over there and I went around on one of these little oval things for, you know, like a Saturday night thing or what have you. All the big cars were there and all that sort of stuff. I'm not even sure at that point in time, I really thought I was going to be making a career in motor racing. Um, I will tell you that um, I was probably 18, finishing off all the karting stuff that I was doing. We were running mostly huge big national events that time or the pk the pro carding association stuff at that time which was money races and um like i said coast to coast and and what have you um i think for me the turning point was when i went to my uh formula ford school at mostport it was a john powell formula ford racing school i went Great. there uh in 1979 obviously a long long time ago and uh i came home and said to my dad and my mom i go that's i'm, I'm gonna go racing I'm not sure i'm gonna i was into everything at the time i had my my cars motorcycles was in music uh, i came home sold everything and just um you know with the exception of small little toolboxes for fixing my car um and i had a couple of cars i was working on at that time i mean nothing like your family builds and cars way back then but i mean uh old, older uh, Monte Carlo with a big block in it and i had a 240z and and uh Z, i guess as you say and then um, yeah, I uh, had some stuff like that. Like I said, music just sold it all so I could then go off and, and I went and got a loan to go get a phone to Ford race car and started racing in 1980. And, um, you know, and then it's a dream. I mean, it's just like I am, you know, seeing all the parents and the young drivers like I was back there in 1980. I'm seeing them now in the present position that I'm in. And uh, it's fun, um, you know, with what I'm doing. You get to guide them. Um, and you get to share with them the highs and the lows and the frustrations of it, you know, so, um, all that said, and fast forwarding a lot, I mean, we've got five drivers now that have come through our F4, F3, and FR five drivers that are running indie cars now since 2016. So there's some, um, you know, um, certainly some enjoyment out of that. Um, but man, it's, um, it's a hard business to be in, um, of which going no. to my youngest son who was racing and and i think excuse me maybe that's why he turned around and decided it was time to go he's now a commercial pilot so um yeah it's 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 a tough, yeah. business, tough business
1: for sure and and i imagine you probably had a high degree of of naivety when you you know bought a formula ford and um i guess it was a pretty robust formula ford series or you got to run a bunch of different tracks up here um yeah. you know kind of unlike now i guess um, so you bought the car and, you yeah. know, just went racing. Yeah.
0: My dad co-signed a loan, um, took out a $20,000 loan at that point in time. Um, wow. and actually signed by a, a bank manager. Still remember him to this day, uh, Doug Palmater was his name and, um, he was a, uh, a Carter himself and my dad co-signed obviously. So that was fine with the Canadian Imperial bank of commerce and, um, then, uh gosh, that was nineteen eighty and uh yeah, naive, I mean talking about that I mean gosh i um you know I, as long as I'm still paying the uh the loan on it, which I was still obviously paying monthly and paying more head, trying to pay stuff off as I was racing and working, I was working three jobs at that time, and um and along with working at my dad's business and um after the first year, when we won the Canadian uh, Formula Ford Championship and the race at the Montreal Grand Prix and trois and a bunch of other stuff, um, the factory in Europe, Crosley, um, decided that they were going to give us a new chassis in 81. So, And it was uh, for free from the factory. So I thought, okay, well, this is cool. So I turned around and sold the 1980 car, obviously. And there's no right. Canadian Ontario registration or something like that. I just sold it and put the money in and helped me continue my uh, my career. You know and then you uh, get another decade down the road and start to really understand that i probably should have paid the loan off when i sold the car and uh it was uh, you know because it was like gosh i was uh, i i paid that loan off in october of 1986 after i won the north american former atlantic championship i took my prize money and finally paid off the remainder of that loan uh, but I also wow. remember that, I don't know, I guess it was 84 or 85 or something like that. A new uh, bank manager came in, at Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, and uh, called me in and um, said, I'm going through this paperwork. I don't see the title for this Crosley 40F. I don't even know what this is. <laughs> so I had to explain to him, it's a racing car. He goes, well, we just generally never do stuff like this and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but anyways, you know, that came to light in me going, I could be in trouble here because I guess I probably should have paid this off because I don't have this car anymore. Uh, yeah. And the end result, uh, bit of a scary moment. And, um, but when you said, naive, <laughs> I was, I was going to go become a racing car driver. However, you know, you're not you right. honestly, you just, you're just one, one day to the next day to the next day. And, um, you know, I see it now with the young drivers that are coming through our series. Um, you know, and you almost have to be like that Gary, because. I mean, you know, late teens, or early 20s or something like that. I mean, yes, there's responsibility. You have to have um, knowledge of what you're doing. But, I mean, uh, you have to be naive in some parts of it. Otherwise, you wouldn't go do it. I mean, it's... No,
1: absolutely. The odds are, are so stacked against you. Did you, you know, how did how did things progress from there? Did you, I mean, clearly you were on the radar winning that championship and... and- um, I guess, how did you end up over in Europe and, and why did you move there? Well,
0: after doing everything the same in 1980, 81, and 82, winning the Formula Ford championship, the Formula Ford race in Montreal, Grand Prix, I think Torvier, I mean, just a ton of stuff and, and stuff down in the States and stuff in Canada. Um, you know, and it, let me add this on. It's funny when you say about karting, um, you know, you come involved in a karting and then you're running against um, established middle-aged men or whatever it was back in karting. When I arrived in Formula Four, and I remember the guys distinctively, in Canada, there was one guy to beat. He'd been winning the championship each and every year. He was out of Godrich, Ontario, and um, John Scratch was his name. And uh, there's nobody could beat him. He was the guy and he just, he just kept on winning. They built their own cars. They had engineers and all that sort of stuff. Uh, his engineer, last name Purdy, I can't remember his first name, Alex, I think it was. And, uh, oh, yeah, these guys were like, uh, man, are you ever going to be able to beat these guys? So that was a great benchmark to be able to run. And the guy down here in the States is like a multi-time SCCA Formula Ford champion, was the best in the country, coast to coast, running for the zinc factory, which built the car. Uh, Dave Weeksanoff out of Ohio. Nobody could beat this guy. So uh, those are my two benchmarks when I came in. So these are guys... And Dave Wietzanoff was an engineer at um, uh, Firestone Products in um, Akron, Ohio. And uh, so, like, these guys, I'm showing up at 20, and these guys are 35 or something like that, but doing it for a long, long time. So it's funny you say that. But, anyways, after those three years, um, I uh, owed $87,000. And so, this is the end of 92. Um, And I turned around and started a school at Shannonville Motorsport Park with my, uh, the team owner that I was running for at that time was named Colin Hine. Colin Hine was out of Ottawa, Canada. He was the Crosley, former Ford distributor, uh, past racer himself, excellent mechanic, had a very good program going on. So I ended up uh, connecting with him in 1980. We ran three years together. So we started the school together with the uh, 1600cc cars We had six formula fords and then uh we got an association together with bmw canada for sedans for that school uh that time it was a 318 you know the 318I e, 318 i yep. or e-, e the ed engine way back then and um so thankfully and bmw came on board and i still remember that guy's name wayne jeffries was the guy that was in charge of bmw canada that time and um yeah so we started the school did that through 83 went and did. Um, sportsman show the world of wheel all those shows that go on you know and with a booth or with a car there and selling the space and i was there signing people up each and every day and what have you and um you know um, paul tracy even came through the school he was one of my students at that point in time but we we had um rented the track in advance and uh had three day schools we sold everyone out uh all in 83 and all through 84 and then um in, uh, at that point in time, the 2000 car, F2000 car came on board, and F2000 is a big series in Canada, Formula 2000, and um, Colin Hine was running a team there, and one of his uh, drivers was not able to make a race at trois And uh, father said, we're finished racing for the year. He's going back to school, whatever the whole program was said. If you have somebody wants to run the car, you're welcome to do it. And uh, because the the fees were paid for, it just needed tires and uh, paid for and fuel. And obviously the expenses, which I really didn't have. So, um, but Colin called me and just said, this is available. You want to try and go money and see if you can uh, run tour of the air. And I went, you know, I've been racing for almost two years at that point in time. Um, so I jumped in my former Ford school car at Shannonville, warmed up a little bit. Uh, we brought the F2000 car down, spent uh, one afternoon in it after our school finished at four o'clock. One day I jumped into it and, and ran it because we didn't have money to rent the track on top of what we had and got used to the car just a little bit. And then we put it in the trailer and sent it up to a So I went up there and um, qualified 14th out of 26. I can't remember what that was there. And I just remember being on the grid and just going... Uh, this is a mistake. You know, if I was to go anywhere and make the career start again, I'd have to be on pole and winning and what have you. But, uh, so I, uh, matter of fact, I was, I think I was hyperventilating. I had to loosen the belt on the, uh, on the seatbelt in the car. Cause I was just, my chest was pounding so hard. I was—I couldn't, mouth was dry. It was like, oh my gosh. Uh, anyway, so we got out on the track, got a good start, got a lot of people in the first lap and continued moving forward and, um, clicking people off and ended up winning the thing. If you can believe it. Wow. So won the thing. And then, uh, in the end result, uh, that was cool. Next race for the, that was all part of the big TransAm weekend. The TransAm went to Mosport for labor day weekend. I was there, uh, wasn't driving anything and basically, um, uh, ran into a guy out of Houston, Texas. He was on his golf cart, driving to Turner eight. I was walking from the pit lane, uh, or in the garage area over to turn eight to watch cars. And, um, uh, he stops and says, hello. And he's a, very heavyset uh, Texan with a cowboy boots on and a big hat. And he goes, boy, where you going? And I said, I'm going over to watch. Car. I'm going there too. hop on. So anyways, I hop on his golf cart. We start chatting and told him the whole story. And he goes, I was at Torrey Earth, a Trans Am car. He goes, I didn't. What number are you? And I told him, he goes, I think you won that race. I said, yeah, I did. He goes, well, that's pretty cool. He gets home and I get a phone call um, seven, eight weeks later from his shop. And saying, uh, "Come on down! Why don't you come and see what we got going on?" So I go down to Houston, Texas. Uh, People's Express back then—you probably don't even know that airline because you're way too young. <laughs> Ask no. your dad; will understand that. People Express uh, fly out of Buffalo, New York, and anywhere in the country for ninety-nine bucks. You had to go through the boyd okay. airport, right? And it was always that night, so it was like a red eye to get over there. So I took that, went down there. One of the mechanics that used to work for me was actually down there working with him. And um, there was no guarantee. So if you want to come back, I'll pay you something to work on cars. We, you know, we've got a shop and we rent cars out, but you can drive it. And I had nothing going. And, uh, you know, we had the school going at that point in time, had to talk with Colin. And, um, you know, Colin knew that, um, you know, and I give Colin Hein full credit that um, him giving me this ride knew that if it helped my career, our school was probably going to close because I was going to run it. And that's exactly what happened. And in my mm-hmm. reference letter that I wrote for Colin Hine to be um, for the Canadian Motorsport Hall of Fame for considerations a couple of years ago, I wrote that in that letter. And I said he knew full well that if I um, had a successful weekend and it rekindled my career, that school would probably close. And it ended up, obviously, we ended up closing the school, sold everything, and then in turn became the uh, Spinard David School with um, right. Richard Spinard and Raymond David. And, um, but I ended up going down there and, um, we did a hodgepodge in 1985 of a couple old Trans Am car races, um, C sports racer, um, ended up getting a sports 2000 and then came up here and learned a lot of tracks, um, middle Ohio, road America, Elkhart Lake tracks I'd not been to before, but that actually helped us a lot. And at the end of 85, he said, boy, you're doing pretty good. And. Uh, what would you like to do next year if you had a Vinnie car? And I told him, I'd like to go form Atlantic racing, North American formal car right. champion, that's where you need to be. Right. And, uh, cause you get to run the Montreal grand Prix, all that sort of stuff. And, um, so he, uh, walked in one day at the shop and he goes, I just ordered, uh, two brand new Ralt RT fours and four Jennings motors and um i mean it was you know it was like christmas working with him obviously and he was an oil trader and uh he didn't drive any of his cars because he couldn't really fit in them at all obviously right but uh he had his nephew and um you know he just he just loved to do it so that was sort of the thing he did it was a little bit of a business so yeah we went for atlantic racing in 86 and won the championship um we um then he ordered ARS cars, which people today know them as Indy Lights or now Indy Necks that Roger Penske taken over. And sure. uh, Pat Patrick started that series way back then, ordered uh, ARS cars and engines and all that sort of stuff. And at the end of the year, um, we were selling all the stuff that we had, the Ralts and all that sort of stuff. And he walked in the shop one day and said, um, uh, that's it. He says, um, we're closing down. And um, I mean, the cars were not there yet, the ARS cars, Indy Lights cars were not there yet, but they're on the way, ordered. And uh, his wife had served him with divorce papers and uh, and that stopped everything. So, um, you know, he had a, he had a Learjet helicopter. I mean, it was just, it was just amazing. Right. And we didn't have any budget issues. If you needed a motor rebuilt on the atlantic motor um, and we had spares he just sent it out and got it fixed it was like i'd never lived like that before it was like wow. right? i used to uh sleep in the back of my datsun b210 on a formula 4 race at uh, san air quebec because i wanted new tires that weekend and i was definitely going to buy new tires instead of actually going to a hotel right and
1: obviously yeah
0: it's like uh, and so i was like wow so yeah so i came home uh i remember if they closed down we finished the day before thanksgiving and um, I got in my car uh, Thanksgiving of 1986, U.S. Thanksgiving, and stopped and, and, um, and I got a hotel and, and ate at a Cracker Barrel, which is a big restaurant chain down here. and got back yeah. the next morning and, and got back to Toronto with not knowing what in the world I was going to do. <laughs> so it was, uh, but, you know, fortunately got uh, into some Porsche stuff up there, got called to do a couple of uh, former Atlantic races. Um, and then, and that was now in 1987 and in 1988, I ended up driving for uh FAF or Chris Faff and Bill Metcalf and group, uh, Bill Metcalf was, uh, my best buddy and, uh, the manager up at FAF at that time. And, and that's when David Deacon started the, um, the, uh, Porsche series that had been going on there for a little bit, 86 and 87 and, yeah. um, all that stuff and ran some of the stuff, even in 86, occasionally up there. And then came back and did more in 87 uh, one of my longtime friends and managers was a lot of help and all that stuff, uh, Rob Tanner. And, um, you know, and still keep in touch with Rob today. Matter of fact, we were emailing back and forth just uh, a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, it was just, it was, you, you just never knew if you were ever going to make it. I mean, we're talking now, we're going on eight, nine years still wondering if you're going to make it. And, you know, I don't know if I was, that—that that, that's the naive part that comes up, you know. Um, or I just wasn't very smart to figure out. It may not work. <laughs> so I don't right. It
1: was. <laughs> right. Yeah. I had, uh, I had David on the podcast actually not too long ago. We oh, had a, yeah. we had a great chat. Was that, um, you know, your exposure in that, in that Porsche Turbo Cup series, uh, and I guess connection with Porsche, was that how you got your foot in the door for the, the Porsche factory stuff at Le Mans?
0: Um, I think it was in a sense, honestly, I think, um, quietly behind the scenes, um, I honestly think it was probably Harvey Hudis, you know, and he's passed and never got a chance to ask him this, but I ended up getting an invitation and it was really through um, Porsche Canada, Audi Canada, everybody in the series. Uh, and, and I think uh, Harvey Hudis also, everybody quietly going behind the scenes to find something else for this kid to go do. And yeah. after winning the 88 Porsche Turbo Cup series, um, I think that's how I ended up on the radar with Audi. So I got an invitation to go to uh, Europe and um, have an an opportunity to do a test at Hockingheim uh, in the Audi Quattros. Uh, Yeah, cool car. Gary, you understand this. I mean, there's no Sims back then. Right. You're learning the racetrack by looking at magazines and, you know, maps and and, uh, races on TV and all that sort of stuff, right? And I remember flying over being just nervous. I don't think I slept that much and got picked up by – by the people for Audi and went to English Lad and the factory and everything like that. And then we're gone away to Hockingheim and stayed at the hotel. And it was all set up. He said, uh, you know, the person for Audi said, uh, you know, tomorrow morning we'll have breakfast down in the hotel and then we'll go next door to the circuit. And, um, you know, this will be, uh, what we'll do. Okay. It was all, you know, very tough in the language, but still getting there. And then, um, the next morning picks me up for sitting, he says, um, the test driver will arrive today. He's going to join us for breakfast. And then we'll go next door to the circuit. So it's wonderful. And we're sitting there having breakfast. And then uh, obviously with the circuit just over there. And then, uh, and me not knowing who the test driver was. I remember this like it was yesterday. It was, it was such a, it was such an uh, idiot at that time. The in walks uh, Hans Stuck being as tall as Hans is. And everybody in the restaurant goes, oh, oh yeah. And I said to the colleague that I was with from out here, oh, look at it. It's Hans Stuck. And the guy looks at me, goes, but yes, of course. That's your test driver today. And I'm like, oh "Oh, shit. Oh, (laughs) yes. You know, so I'm enamored because it's Hanstuck, you know, seeing read about him and all that sort of stuff, and then found out he was my test driver I was going against that day. I was sort of sunk in my chair a little bit, you know. So, but he was super. Um, Got to know him and went over there and we did our test programs. It was very short. I mean, it's as you are, you get uh, 10 lap segments over there. And the first 10 laps was to get out there and get to understand where the track goes and feel the car a little bit come in, make sure the seats fitting and all that sort of stuff, heads good and all that sort of stuff, another 10 laps. And, and then uh, to get another more acclimatized to what's going on. And then a 10 lap segment to see how consistent you are and how fast you are. And then they went out and had uh, two cars, um, Hans and one and myself and another, and just a, a back and forth to see how, you know, you do it. So I'm out there doing stuff and I took times and passed him. And we just went out and, and, you know, flat out type thing. Um, and then came back in and, and, uh, it was very quiet and, and, uh, I'm thinking, okay, maybe I did something I wasn't supposed to do. I really know what was going on. So anyways, he asked me just to go sit in the motorhome, uh, of which I did. And I thought, I'm not sure what I did, but I guess I'm probably, bad. I have no idea what's going on. Right. Cause they're all talking in German and all that when I get the car and I'm in there, which seemed like for a day, I'm sure it was probably only 10 minutes or something like that. And then the door opens up and Hans steps into the motorhome as big as he is. And I get up and hi and then he sticks his hand out shakes my hand he goes uh scotty welcome to the team and I Cool. wow okay i mean i thought i was being pitched i didn't know what was going on right so obviously test went well so i was pleased with that and then uh, got to run with them here in north america and got to know hans quite well and my teammate was hurley haywood uh, which we become friends and i did more stuff with Hurley in the, in the career with uh, the uh, daytona prototype stuff and what have you um, but yeah, it was just a, you know, it just sort of went from one thing to another, but you never knew even in September of that particular year, if you were driving next year, you didn't know if you were making a living. I mean, making a living right. is just paying expenses and paying your insurance and paying your gas bill, being able to pay your flights and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, and way before that. Um I had and I explained this to all the, the drivers that I have now in the position I am. I um you know, I tell the uh young lads that you just need to continue to put yourself out there and meet people. I was very fortunate early in my career at Mostport, uh sitting underneath an awning one time, uh and sat at a table with a bunch of people and then ended up having a conversation with a guy that was beside me. And, um, and he said, oh, and I saw him again the next day at the track. At most part, we started having more of a conversation. He was in old dock shoes, shorts, an old T-shirt and what have you. And, um, and not really, never raced or anything of that nature. But anyways, I uh, listened to my story and he gave me his uh just his name and number he said uh you know I'm Toronto just, just um we're probably not far from each other why don't you just uh, call me we'll talk a little bit more and see what you got going on i think your story's pretty cool type thing so anyways i get this and i call the number and make an appointment to go and see him there's no address on this piece of paper he gave me and you know the lady i called didn't say a company name and then cuz it was his personal secretary and then um in the end result, um, I go and I get appointment time. I get then get the address, you know, before Google where you're Googling an address or whatever. So I'm going down, I'm pulling up, and I stop and I pull up. I look at the front of this place and I'm going, oh, this can't be right. You know, so I drop up and down the street. I'm going, I guess this is it. I pull in and I walk in there and I sit at the reception. I go, I think I'm in the wrong spot, but I'm looking for a man by the name of Stephen Cobblock. Oh, yeah, Steve. Are you Sky? Yeah, yeah, he's expecting you. It was Wasteco Sanitation. That's Steve, right. Steve. Cuddle. So anyways, I walk in there and, uh, this is, I mean, we're talking, this is, uh, way back before I went back up a little bit, like 83, 84 type thing, you know, in that time. And he said to me, uh, well, you need to go off and see people. Why don't you just go travel and get to racetracks? Like you said, you need to do and talk to managers and talk to teams and see if you can get yourself a ride, do whatever you need to do. Um, flights, cars, hotels, and just bring me your visa bill. I'm going, really? He goes, yeah. And so I remember taking the first one in the first time, you know, it was, it was $947. Yeah. And he's looking over his glasses and all that. He's looking like that. And uh, I remember distinctly, he goes, said, Well, this is not going to work. And I'm thinking, Oh, man, I'm I'm done now. Right. And he goes, uh, <laughs> You obviously have not been traveling enough. You need to be somewhere all the time, every week. So I go, Really? Yeah. So now they became a couple grand or three grand. And, and that's, God, I didn't have the money to travel. Right. So that was back, like I said, back even in the 80s. And that allowed me to even get to that point down to, to Houston, So he was very helpful, uh, became a very, very good friend uh, over the years. And um, so much so that he continued with me all the way through. And even when I became a higher driver, I still had waistcoat on the top of my helmet or on my visor. And Steve would come to races and just hang out and have fun. Uh, he got involved with Derek Walker, who was one of my team owners. Matter of fact, a lot of people don't know this, but um, when Derek was uh, built, you know, he, Derek even had a form Atlantic team before, uh, he got, um, a lot of other stuff going and, um, it was Stephen Codwell that bought the foreign Atlantic cars that, uh, Will Power and Simon Paginot drove mm-hmm. Owned the cars for Derek Walker when those guys drove for them. And then he, he owned other stuff. I had no longer was with Derek cause I'd left the Valvoline team. I was on doing other stuff, but, uh, yeah. And those guys became good friends and then we'd all get together. Unfortunately, uh, Stephen passed of cancer a couple of years ago and that uh, was very unfortunate and uh but we remained you know friends and got to see each other all the time and uh, he even came out and watched my son Michael do a little bit of racing um you know when Michael was um running uh in f4 the stuff that I'm taking care of now Michael did that a bit in 16 and then um Michael and I ran up at most port in 17 for Chris uh in the for Chris Faff in the um Faf Touring car, BMW Faf Touring cool. car at that time. So uh, in a three-hour race, which we won GT2 class. so uh, But Stephen was out there with that. And so it was just nice to share all that sort of stuff of him. But uh, yeah, sort of strange how the world all works with that. But um, no, you, abs- you, keep you keep digging.
1: Right, right. Mm-hmm. So how did you get, you know, I imagine you got uh, maybe a small paycheck. Maybe I'm wrong, but a small paycheck from, you know, Audi. And and now you are a, you know, you're a factory driver, You know, you're established. People know your name. How did the jump to IndyCar happen or, you know, really kind of getting opportunities there? Funny
0: story. Uh, Obviously, I had a couple of opportunities to drive an IndyCar um, with Gore Racing, a guy by the name of Dick Hammond, owned Genesee Beer Distributorship in upstate New York, and he had an IndyCar. Uh, Rob Tanner, um, manager at that time, like I said, and great friend, uh, put that all together where i got to do a couple of road course races for uh, the genesee beer wagon that time matter of fact that car was rebranded rothman's when i ran at the toronto indy Um, but in 1989 um, i was now had an invitation from the porsche factory uh, to come over and run the invitational race in a 944 turbo cup car uh, before the 24 hour of le mans race so you know i think it was held at 10 o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock in the morning before the major race started and, uh, and I'd been to Le Mans before because I was there with Brun, uh, the Canadian team with um, the Brun 962, Porsche 962, and with Bill Adam and Richard Spenard. So I knew my way around there a little bit, obviously. But as the um, uh, champion of the Turbo Cup Series, you got invited. But there was champions from around the world, um, probably 20 cars, something in that neighborhood, if I can recall. Um, I, I ended up um, qualifying uh, seventh. And... Um, and then got up to fourth was passing the guy into third up into the s's and the guy punted me off and ended up in a gravel trap i ended up getting back to i think maybe fourth or fifth from being 12th or something like that i was i was incensed but that was 89 but anyways i was over at the mall for that race and at that point in time everybody over there as you know it stays at these big chateaus everybody's together and what have you porsche canada took a group over and uh part of that group was good customers and and uh, business people and what have you Uh, One of them was, uh, the customers there was uh, Jim O'Donnell, founder and president of McKenzie Financial Corporation. I'd never met him, knew of him. Um, I was uh, with my girlfriend at that time, my wife now, Leslie. And uh, we came in from a morning run. And, you know, those breakfast rooms and those things have, you know, 20 or 40 people or something like that. You get yourself and you go and sit at these big, long tables and anyways, I'm sitting there with my wife beside me. I said, uh, you're not going to believe who's down the table on that side. Da, da, da. And he was always traveling with a, you know, like a traveling person, protector, bodyguard, what you want to call it all the time, I guess. But uh, any case, um, I, I noticed who he was, had not been him before. And I said, well, maybe we'll see him at the track. I never would go and call another sponsor or some other driver's sponsor. Never did that. I had people calling my sponsors all the time, but I would never right. call somebody else's sponsor. So I'd never met him before. And they were involved in IndyCar racing at that point in time, uh, doing some racing with uh, Ludwig Heimrath Jr. And mm. uh, with the McKenzie cars, and this was in 1989. So anyways, uh, he gets up and he leaves and, and I thought, okay, fine. And then 30 seconds later, because he had to come out and go through a door and he must've went down the hall and came around. I feel the tap on my shoulder and I look around and I'm like, oh my gosh, you don't, up and say hello how are you and and he goes uh i remember like it was yesterday he goes hi very soft-spoken individual as he is um hi i don't know if you know me my name James jim o'donnell and um i sponsor an indycar team i don't know if you know about it right and i'm thinking like dude yes <laughs> i know all about it you know i just haven't been one of the guys that's on the phone calling you type thing right and he said well uh, i'd be interested in talking to you if you wouldn't mind because um we're thinking of running two cars uh, this year at two events, one being Toronto, and the other one is a big market for us just outside of Chicago at a track called Road America. And um, do you know the track? You've been there. Yes, I have. I said, "Oh yeah, sure." I know that. And all that. He goes, "Okay, um I'll be back next week. Can you please? Would you like to come down and see me?" I said, "Yes." And I was staying the next week um, because I actually had the engagement ring with me to get en- engaged to my wife. Right, let's say at that time. So we stayed the next week. Uh, very difficult. I was almost like telling. Uh, at that point in time, oh, we got to go back, we've got to go back to Toronto. I right was <laughs> anxious to go meet with him, right? But being through so much of this stuff and highs and lows, I thought, okay, well, getting excited, something may not happen here. So that whole thing goes. So anyways, we got back the next weekend and I remember I distinctively called now a week later on Monday, you know, I think like 901 a.m. or something like that, I'm calling. And uh, I remember the lady's name, Deborah Kemp, was the lady that I called. She goes, hi, yes, oh, yes, he was expecting to have a call. Is this Thursday work for you? I go Absolutely. You know, I'm one of them. So, so I get down there like Thursday. I don't think I slept Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night, right? So, it's like Thursday morning, I'm down there and going to meet him for lunch in downtown, the big tower and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, had lunch and a terrific gentleman and ended up doing a couple of races with them in 1989 at Toronto and at Road America. And then, um, got invited to come and be full time starting in 1990. So, um, you know, it's funny because as much as you are chasing sponsorship, you are on the phone to teams, uh, and I say this to all the drivers that are in the series that I'm doing now, um, you just need to make sure that you put yourself out there all the time, communication, and um, you never know where stuff's going to show up. And know, sure. some of the stuff that you chase, you get, and it's a stuff that is odd, like running into the Texan at most port uh, on the golf cart. Uh, running into Steve Codwell, sitting beside him in a group table of a bunch of people that were all sitting there chatting and, you know, didn't know who he was or anything of that nature. Um, You know, it's just all that sort of stuff. And my point to this is that I tell the drivers all the time, you are eat, breathing, sleeping, motor racing to be successful on the track. You are representing motor racing. You're representing yourself off the track. So anytime that you go and do something that probably you shouldn't be doing, That's the stuff that usually gets seen sometimes. And if sometimes, and I explain my stuff that I talk to them, whether I'm in group settings or individuals, and I tell them stories and just tell them that you just never know. Somebody may turn around. And I said, if you're really pleasant and, you know, they take a liking to you, you can turn around and end up uh, finding sponsorship. And, you know, and a 15 second quick story on that. And that happened in our series, probably three, four years ago. Now, there was a young driver um, at Mid-Ohio had got to know a owner of one of our svra svra is the vintage racing stuff where these guys come in their own planes have their motor homes it looks like an IndyCar hard paddock because you've been there you've seen yeah. and our group owns transcend vintage racing svra f4 fr all that sort of stuff and then, um, so anyways, this young driver liked one of the cars cause his dad was looking at, like the car started having a conversation, all that sort of stuff with, uh, this one team won't mention names or teams anything like that. So he's walking from the paddock area back up and the, and the gentleman comes out and he's in his fifties, very wealthy. Hey, how'd you do today? Yeah, we blew a motor. Oh my gosh. Well, once qualifying, well, it's this afternoon, but we're not going to probably make it cause we don't have a spare motor. I think we're going home. And he goes, Oh, was there spare motors from here? He goes, I I'm sure they're around here but we just don't have it. He was with his buddy driver, right? And then uh, he said just a second. He walks inside comes out with his checkbook. And he says how much is a motor? And he That's stands over cool. this checkbook and writes a check for 14 grand, hands it to the young man, he says go buy yourself a motor. And, wow. it, and it happened. Yeah. Amazing. And he bought yep. the motor and just got, he and he went to the team owner, the team owner came to me, he goes, I don't know what to do with this. I mean, who, because he says, you guys own not SVRA stuff and what have you. How does this all work? And uh, yeah, so you, you just never know. I mean, 14 yeah. grand to him was like probably you and I going out to, you know, McDonald's for a big breakfast or something, you know, and, right. and it's all about who, you know, and, and uh, you know, cause I mean, in our series right now, we've got families arriving in their planes and then we've also got wow. families that are arriving that are weekend to weekend. Uh, the Canadian Patrick Woods Toth who won the F4 series this year? Comes out of Ron Fellows karting program, races in Ron Fellows karting program in Canada, runs for Trevor Wicken's, which is Robbie Wicken's yep. brother. And I had never met him, had never heard of him. I started a carts to cars program down here in the states where I take. Uh, kids that are karting from high level programs. Ron Fellow sends me a driver, Mark Dismore that has the facility here. In Indianapolis, I take a couple of drivers. Him, I'm calling upon all my friends to send me drivers. Will Power has a kart team, so I call Will. He sends me a guy. And um, you know, I take these four guys one year to um, the Radford School which we have an uh, association with out in, in Phoenix because they have our F4 cars. And yep. it's Patrick Woods tough, And he was race to race. So he got to the first race. Um, and did well was on the podium, every, every race, the first three races of the, of the year that last year. And then, um, you know, he didn't know if he'd make the second one because he's out looking for money, Ron fellows is trying to help him. And then, you know, it gets to the second one. Now he starts being up in the podium again. Now he's leading the points championship. Now he's won a race. And then lo and behold, Carlo Fidini comes along from Orlando corporation that owns most and says, let's give this guy a shot. Now he's got Orlando on the side of the car. But he started all last season in 2023, not knowing if he's going to the next race. And then, right. you know, so you've got that level of it. And then you've got the families, like I said, showing up in their own planes in our series. And
1: right. that's how it works. And that's, you know, as much as people complain about that being the, you know, the, the reality of the sport, you know, I've done a decent amount of homework just by the nature of, you know, looking up old cars and old race car history and whatnot. And that was certainly the case back in the, you know, the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s. Yeah. And then, you know, my question to you, I guess, is, was there, do you really think that, that those, you know, 70s, 80s, and 90s specifically, were they really kind of a golden era of of motorsports where there was more opportunities for drivers?
0: You know, and... and um <laughs> you're making me a little older than I am. So, I mean, I can't tell you on the seventies and stuff. No, 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 I know that. That's, but... So that's okay. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting when you say that and, you know, and I guess, and I'll tell you a quick little story. I'm, in my world. that tells you how that is. It has changed dramatically. We talked about how different it was just going karting or going car racing or what have you. Um, you know, and then when I look at it now, uh, when I was doing what I was doing, uh, won the Atlantic championship and then had a call from peerless Corvette, Marion, Indiana and said, Hey, uh, we've got a, it was was Jacques Villeneuve, the brother, not Jacques Villeneuve, the brother. And they said, um, you know, we saw that, um, you know, we won't pay for you to come and attend a test, but if you're available, excuse me, you should, um, you know, we're going to test some drivers in West Palm beach and, you know, four weeks. If you're coming down there, uh, yeah, I'll be down there. know i was getting down there i was getting in the car and driving down there was what i doing and so um you know i I got to thinking about it and then um there again uh at this point in time there again with the help of guys like stephen codwell uh you need to go down there and just say hello so you jump in the car he's helping me pay gas you know this is back in the mid 80s and um you you call up as a Marion, Indiana. And I said, "Hey, uh, I'm going to Indianapolis to talk some talk to some people, some teams and stuff like that." And you Marions the, on the way because it's up the highway here in 69. Uh, can I stop in? Oh yeah, that's a. Well, I wouldn't go to Indianapolis to talk to teams because I have any teams to talk to, right? But I mean, it was just an excuse for me to get on the phone to say, "Hey, I'm driving by." And so, sure enough, I drove down there, and they said, "Yeah, we like you a lot." Definitely come to the test. We'll, we'll pay for your hotels. Come to the test and all this sort of stuff. So the end result, I go down there, do the test. It goes well, and I get a couple of rides with them. And um, and 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 spending time with Jacques and Villeneuve, the brother, is a whole different story. I could fill up five podcasts with that one for, for for a long period of time, from going out to eat with him, being in a rental car with him. And I said, I should not be alive, but I'm here. So yeah, that one, I could fill up a whole day with that one. Uh, and I'd never met the guy before until I jumped in the rental car with him, and I thought if I get to the racetrack alive. I'm happy. It was so bad I actually got there. And I said to them, I go, I know that, um, I, I can't afford a rental car and pay for a rental car, but I can't drive for that. So <laughs> one of the mechanics, it was like, it was insanity to the highest level. Okay. And uh, thinking forward Florida, thinking, okay, we'll just all end up in jail. But um, it was, uh, yeah, I, uh, but I, I, you know, the, the way it's changed so much is that you got these calls. And I said to my son, um, you know, and I felt bad to a point because I was telling him all the stuff and I was giving him the reality, not the sure. hype of the whole thing. And uh, he's a smart kid and he was doing two majors in school, accounting and insurance risk management degrees. And, um, you know, he's trying to decide whether you want to try and go motor racing or whether he's going to go into business. And this is the one that's now a commercial pilot. And uh, I guess I said so much, and I don't want to say in a negative tone, Gary, mm. but it wasn't, you know go ahead, go try and go try. I had to give him the reality of it. Cause as a parent, you have to do that. Right. Sure. he said to me one time, we we're driving along and he goes, uh, dad, and he's asking you something I said, yeah. He goes, um, with all the stuff that we're talking about over all this time, he goes, do you think that I don't have the talent to make it? Mm. And I stopped and I went, Michael, I, I don't understand that. He goes, well, you say this, you say that. And you say..." that I went, oh, I got no son, man, son. No, I'm that's not what I'm saying whatsoever. I'm just giving the reality of everything right now because I've seen it either driving or I've seen it because I was doing 17 years of television with ABC and ESPN. And I watched all the kids come in in the undercard stuff and go all the way up and then not finally get there, you know, getting to Atlanta. I had this conversation with Tony Kanaan one time, you know, because he was helping a lot of the Brazilian kids come out of Brazil. You know, real was very strong to the dollar and they had a lot of those kids coming and uh, they had to just run out of talent or else they run out of money because the business is so hard. I mean, if you look at IndyCar today, um, you know, in our era, basically everybody got paid to drive a race car back then. Everybody, you know, it's not like that today. You know, it's no. not like that today. And that's the unfortunate side of it. I mean, this, there's a couple people, couple of top people in every team that are getting paid for. The other ones are bringing packages together. You know, NASCAR has changed, Gary, as you've seen. It's changed decade, decade ago. And, you know, uh, I always say to people that, you know, geez, that wrap business, that's a real smart business. People wrapping stuff. Well, that became a necessity because they couldn't take the paint schemes off of a car one weekend and go NASCAR racing the next weekend because they had different sponsors. They didn't have the same sponsor all the time anymore. So they had to come up with some damn thing to make all this work. Um, The business has changed dramatically. And. You know, if you uh, if you call a team now because they're not calling you, you call a team. Oh, yeah, I've heard of you. And OK, great. Yeah. We know a little bit about you. The first question is going to be, what's your budget? Yeah, it's not going to be what did you win last. It's going to be what's your budget? You know, so I'll yep. say that stuff to my son. And um, no, I told him I'd help him in anything he wanted to do. You know, it was, I was having dinner with Chris Pfaff one night. And he asked me about Michael and he said, oh, you guys should come up and do this race that we have, that three-hour race. And we just went up and did it for fun. Steve Borlotti ran the car. And Michael went up the next weekend, uh, next year in 18. I wasn't able to go. I couldn't get there till like Sunday or something like that. And uh, he ran with Sam Fellows, Ron's, uh, Ron's son. They ran together. And... Um, which uh, I couldn't be part of that team at 5'7". It didn't work. My son's six one, six two, and Sam's like 6'6", six, six or something like that. He only need two drivers anyways. But, uh, you know, so for me, it was the fun of watching him go off and do that. But uh, he was, um, he loved it. He was very, very good at it. Um, could he have had the ability? Absolutely, probably could have. But it, that's not the, the determining factor anymore. You know, and then he chose to, to make a curve. He got his degrees, and then he chose to become a, a commercial pilot. Um, you know, because it is so difficult today. Um, you know, and you look at guys that, um, I just look at Linus Lindquist that came through our series, one F3, uh, one Indy Lights. It took him still a couple of years before he just got signed by Ganassi last fall to be a full-time paid IndyCar driver for the next couple of years. Because he set right. the world on fire when he finally got a chance to get in there. I mean, it's not like IndyCar is not a... Closed club, like I'm going to call Formula One. Um, sure, you know IndyCar. I mean, got American drivers, but you know, it's just like they take drivers from anywhere in the world. You know, it's you know, I think we've seen now with when Michael Andretti tried to go to Europe and people previously to that, um, it's just very difficult. Um, if you don't start over there, you're born and raised over there. I, you're not going to be part of that whole program. I hate to say. It
1: no for sure i I mean it's and it's interesting and, and it's you know something i didn't realize before um chatting with with paul tracy um and and al jr on the podcast is how much you know cup and f1 were still look we're really looking at you guys and you know testing every once in a while did did that ever happen to you did you ever get a you know, NASCAR test or an F1 test?
0: No, I ran the IROC series. Um, I had a call from an F1 team uh, umpteen years ago, Um, you know, but it's, um, you know, and I didn't really get that far down the road because I knew the business and we went through some conversation, you know, and they, they go up, you know, and, and we've got a million dollars set aside for the driver's budget. But if we really know what's going on, you spend all that traveling number one anyways um you know the fees and what have you for fia licenses and that sort of stuff you need a lot of money up there i have no idea what the insurance cost is there i know when i finished my last year of racing uh indy cars i was paying fifty-five thousand dollars a year insurance because you need temporary disability permanent disability excessive medical you need life insurance i mean if you're going to run it like a business and do it properly you need to be covered on all those areas and then you need obviously amount, a fair amount of that is covering your salary. So if you don't, you know, if you can't drive. So, um, you know, and there's, you know, and I feel bad because I know there's people out there today probably in endurance cars and Indy cars and what have you are not insured. And let's hope sure. in most cases you never need it. But then again, um, you know, it's if you have a temporary disability, which I've had a couple of times because I had obviously uh, broken backs twice and then other stuff that I uh, crashed with and what have you, this is obviously well before safer barriers and, and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, you need to do it, uh, and run it like a business and it's, it can be expensive, but I mean, yeah. So the F1 tells you, oh, we got a million dollars set aside for you. And da-da-da-da. it's like, it doesn't mean a whole lot, you know, that's in, and the thing is, it's not with a great team on um, the, uh, I never had an interest on, uh, the NASCAR stuff. Never even looked at that, uh, was invited for the IROC series, which obviously I accepted one year. Mm-hmm. And then I did Daytona and Talladega. And then, uh, unfortunately, um, I had uh, crashed in the Indy car and broken my back at, at Indianapolis that year. And uh, it was my final year. And then so Al Jr. came in and took over the last two races for me that year. So, um, But I, I, got in the, <laughs> I got in the IROC car and, at Daytona. And, you know, you come out of the pit lane, Daytona's a long run all the way up until the turn one, you know, on the front, on the front stretch there. And it's big, it's loud, and you know the gear shifters like from here back to the next room and all those sort of stuff compared to what we're used to, right? And and uh and they had a great group of guys teaching you and it was it was the most fun I've had in a long time with that stuff. It was really, really fun. And then I'm getting up there and you know that track starts to move and like that, you're banking and stuff like that. And so I'm going with it, going with it. I remember this like it was yesterday. And then I'm going and like, I'm moving the steering wheel. It's just like, if I move that steering wheel that much in my Indy car, I'd be over in the infield. Right. And I'm moving the steering wheel, like nothing's happening. And I'm thinking, <laughs> shit, the steering box is broken. This <laughs> and I'm going along and then finally, you know, it's, Oh, there it is. And then the banking comes and then you start, okay. So it's like this much movement on it, you know, and the shift rolls like from here to here, four speed and all those sort of stuff. I was as foreign and that thing as you know, as yeah, it was like being in different countries. So, I got the hang of it a little bit and then, um, you know, got to feel not too bad with it at uh, Daytona and had some fun. And, but I, a couple of times I got left, it was, was, um, got left out and stuck behind and got way back. And it actually ended up being Dale Jarrett was behind me. And I look in the mirror and I don't know all the codes and all this hand signals, stuff like that. (laughs) Bumping like this. And we're now catching back up to the pack. Right. And so I'm thinking, Oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. Let's this hand signal, this hand signal, whatever. We get up to the pack and I'm thinking, and I, I go, I'm pointing this way. I'm going to go this way. Evidently, I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing because I don't know if there was hand slinging on it. I just looked at it and I thought, this will be the place to go. And I go like that. I do this and I move and I go up like that. And I look in my mirror and he's down this way. He's left me. Okay. Oh. <laughs> he used me to get back up to the thing and like this two by two. And then, uh, yeah, and then we got up there. And so I ended up finishing seventh or whatever it was. And then uh I looked at him afterwards and I go like that. And he goes, Oh, sorry, man. I, I had to go a different way.
1: <laughs> I <was just> like, <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, I'll see how this works. It was hilarious. Yeah. And then went to Talladega, which was an eye opening experience with uh the things just walking and moving and what have you. It's a whole different world. I think you need to you need to grow up doing that if you're gonna go do that. It's like those guys trying to come and do what we do over here, you know, and, and trust the car and not lift a turn one at India at two forty. So um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, we got to go do that sort of stuff, but I, I, mean, I'm fascinated by those things, fascinated by the event. Um, I'm just not sure that driving that was really, it wasn't my thing, you know, sure. I guess if I grew up doing it, maybe I would have thought that, but, uh, yeah, when you go drive a single seater car and you can do what you can do with it at Indy and make it move and, and qualify and just have the things skimming and sliding a little bit and just doing what you're doing and. And how it changes in four laps of qualifying and you get to read it and understand it and walk it. I mean, that to me is you're all in one with the car. I mean, that's so cool. And I guess they do that with those things, but it, it wouldn't be me. <laughs> I'm afraid to say, yeah, no
1: way. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Was it, um, I'm curious about about the, well, the 956, I guess, and the the GT1. Uh, how big an adjustment was that? And, you know, obviously coming from an Indy car, the, the GT one at least would feel a lot slower. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I guess your first time at Le Mans was there, they just had the one kink there like that. That would have been a little bit hair raising. Yeah. You know, even,
0: yeah, it was, um, in the, you know, in the Brun car, um, you know, those things are supercars and, you know, they said, Uh, We go over there, you guys, you can get on the track as early as Tuesday. You get to run every day, lots of testing, all this sort of stuff. You go, okay, well, all sounds good, right? So off we go with uh, Bill Adam and Richard Spenard and myself and what have you. And then Bill had been there before, but Bill wasn't around Canada because he lives in Florida. So, you know, we chat and talk and anyways, you all meet up there. And then Bill goes, uh, well, no, we don't run all day. He said, no, they just because it's public roads. The roads are going during the day and then they close them off at five o'clock and they do it very efficiently, very quickly. And then everybody has their driveways coming out of their property on these county roads. If The guardrails are sitting behind the guardrail, but they come along and they put a piece of guardrail there, bolted in and it becomes racetrack. So you're in your house and you haven't made it there by whatever time. And at, at you know, 11 o'clock at night, they come and take it down, open the roads again. So, um, I mean, yes, there is testing every day. It's a lot shorter than what they actually say it is. And then the other side of it, too, is, you know, it does stay light out for a long period of time. But no. So by the time we got to go racing that year, um, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, if I had a dozen laps around that place, I really don't know. And this is pre-SIM, obviously. So, um, and I remember because it looked like it had a little bit of rain. So we got introduced to, um, you know, some of the Porsche drivers and what have you, one being Hans Stuck. (laughs) And I remember Hans and the question was, Hans, uh, the the kink, uh, flat out. Yeah. 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 Okay. In the rain, flat out. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yes. Yes. Okay. Fine. Oh like my goodness. And so then, uh, and I saw him later on, I said, Oh, it's really like that. And he goes, yes, yes. He goes, but Scotty, uh, one thing you don't do. I said, what's that? And he goes, um, you don't, uh, you don't look out the side window. It's so fast. You just keep looking forward. You'll, you're so long and you go and you eh, long straight away and you start thinking the mind goes, you look out the side windows. And I, you know, I've been out for practice once and I'm thinking, looking out the side windows are you freaking joking me are you kidding We're like 235 or 230 miles an hour and like this and i'm going seriously but oddly enough once you get going after a while then it all starts to slow down it's like anything you ever get into like some being in india i tell people you know it feels like you're going 100 miles an hour on the highway at India because that's what it felt like right obviously not and then but this is the same thing and then you sort of get to that point where it's like that it only had the one kink at that time when I went back for uh, the GT one program with uh, the Porsche factory team, which stuck was on that team. And I'm sure he was the one that got me an invite to go do it. It was a uh, Stuck and then Bob Wallach and Terry Bootson in the 25 car. And then I was with Yannick Damas, Damas and Carl Benlinger and myself in the 26 car. And, um, so we finished second and third overall first and second in class. We were second class, but third overall, And, um, Yeah, that that car, uh, we had the kink, both the kinks in that point in time, and or chicanes rather, along with the kink. I can only tell you that thing is like a single-seater car. That thing was absolutely amazing. and You got as much speed, again, uh, in between the two kinks, one obviously one way, one the other way, and um, you hammered on those brakes as hard as you could on the ABS. You came up to the point and just hammered them like that through there, and then you got back in the gas. It was like driving a single-seater car. One of the nicest things I've wow. ever driven. Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Uh, absolutely. Just tremendous. And um, I had a teammate uh, crash in practice in the evening, and the thing came back in the back of a flatbed. I looked at it and I thought, well, we're, it's never going to be fixed. We're done. And, um, and then uh, the next day came back and it was ready uh, for practice. Uh, got into it. You know, in the back of your mind, you're always wondering, okay, got rebuilt. Is it going to make it all the way through? Never a problem. I mean, within, wow. and that was a year in 96 where I was scheduled to be with them and do testing. Uh, and I was supposed to be in Spain and I ended up having the rear wing failure in Rio de Janeiro with the IndyCar and I broke my back. And so I was there until Thursday because Dr. Trammell had to make a class for me. They'd measure it and then have it made in Indianapolis. I got flown there to clamshell you together to bring you back to Methodist Hospital because he doesn't do anything anywhere else in the world, right? It's all down at Methodist. So I got there, got flown back on Thursday, ended up going and landing at the Methodist and what have you. And then um, and I ended up, um, we always call it the driver's suite at Methodist Hospital. I've been there twice. It's top floor in the corner, nice window view, sunset and all that sort of stuff. Not that you want to go there, but that's a nice mm-hmm. area there for your family. And. Um, It's uh, you know, so I got back and I thought, okay, I probably, hopefully, I can still run this. Dr. Trammell uh, would not allow me to do the Indy 500 because it was a too close to the 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 crash. Number one, Mm -hmm. number two, he said um, you can't hit a wall because you know you're going to have an issue, obviously. Uh, So I may let you go and run uh, Le Mans, but you know it's going to be a close call. And I'm going, I go Terry, you don't understand this. I mean. You can count on two hands how many people have driven for the Porsche factory. I go, if if I don't do this now, I'm probably never doing it. So you need to understand, I'm going, if you're like that. And previously, conversation was weeks before that um, I said to him, and he's a good friend, so we were having a banter back and forth. And um, I said to him, uh, he said, well, I'm not sure you're going to be ready for the Indy 500. And I said, uh, well, yeah, I'm going to run. I'm going to run. He goes, oh, okay, we went through this conversation every day he'd come in and checking in the room. And then one day he said to me, um, he said, okay, I'm running. So, and he goes, Oh, you are. And he, I said, yeah. And he goes, Oh, um, how are you getting your license? I said, uh, well, I have a license. And he goes, Oh, well, how are you getting your insurance? I said, well, I have insurance. I, I don't understand what you're asking me about it. And he goes, and Terry looks and he goes, yeah, you do have both of those, but until I sign off on both of those, you don't have either one. So you don't have a license to go back to racing and the insurance carrier is not going to cover you in the car. If you get back in the car until I tell them that you are healed. And I'm going, Terry, my good friend, how are you? (laughs) So So he still didn't allow me to do Indy because obviously the speeds and hitting a concrete wall. But he did allow me to go to Le Mans. Um, I missed the testing that was going on, you know, at all the places in Europe and in Spain and what have you. So I never got to drive the car. Until I got over there, I got over there early and went to Stuttgart and did some testing at their test track. And then, uh, when I first got in the car for the first day, it was actually just breaking in uh, brake rotors and pads and all that sort of stuff, which you know had to be done anyways because they like to do it that way. And so that was neat. I got to know all the car over there and like that. And, got, and then, and then I got some testing in the car at the track and all that sort of stuff. So I really didn't get a chance to go run it, uh, you know, like a proper huge circuit. Until I got to uh, Lamont, which was a bit of a disappointment, but it turned out to be fine. Yeah. But I almost didn't get there because I really thought. And the um, I remember the guy, Herbert Outfire, who was the head of Porsche Worldwide Racing. Um, I was back home, actually, out of the hospital. And so he calls me. A time was all set up. His office called. So I ended up on the phone and he said, Hey, I'm just checking in, I'm glad that you are okay. I've had some assessments uh, given to me by by uh, IndyCar, everything is said, da da, da da. And he goes, um, I just have one question. I need to know if you will be available and you will be healthy, being obviously fit and ready to go and um, and do the 24 hour. Um, and I said, oh yeah, it's fine like that. And he let me say what I was gonna say. And he goes, but you need to really understand what I'm asking you. Um, we do not run programs where they're not successful type thing. Hmm. And uh, if you are not able to compete, then we would have to find another driver to take your spot because we cannot have you not be able to fulfill your obligations because everybody's responsible for eight hours. And um, I said to him, um, (laughs) I remember this distinctively and I said, Oh yeah, I'll be ready. I said, uh, could you find somebody to um, fill my spot if I couldn't do it? He goes, Oh yes, Scott. He goes, uh, we've had twenty calls the day after you crashed. <laughs> oh yeah. And he says some of them are your, t- your your fellows in IndyCar. So because back then there was only a few times that IndyCar didn't have a conflict with Lamont. Mm. You know, now it's separate. But I mean we ended up there was no conflict for a while, then there was conflicts for whatever reason. And then uh, you know, that's how that ends up working. They've tried to not do that and obviously in the last longest time. But yeah, and I just knew that if you didn't end up being on the team. So I'd be in deep trouble, but um, because I'd never get back there again. So I assured him of that and I was training once I got, uh, I still have my brace on and I was still training and working with, um, with the trainer here and everything of that nature. So we were fine. We were good and what have you. It was a. yeah, but all my all my buddies and colleagues. He didn't tell me any names, but I'm sure uh, there's yeah. probably everybody else that's on the grid with me in the car going. Uh, he's not going to make it. <laughs> we can, still yeah, don't worry. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, wow, was that was that the? I don't really know how to how to put it, but was that the biggest, most professional team effort and? Was that the highlight of your career That with the GT1?
0: And you've hit on two things there. Number one, that was probably the highlight of standing on a podium because um, you walk out, you know, like they do in F1. You're walking out at Le Mans and they introduce you and then all the sea of people is rushing up pit lane. It's just a whole sea of people and everything like that. And so, you know, I haven't seen it for a long time, but I was digging stuff out a couple of years ago for somebody that wants some stuff and came across a picture. With, uh, you know, all three teams standing up there with, uh, you know, obviously Stoke guys on one side, we're over here and the winners are in the middle. And, you know, it's just a sea of people and Le Mans and the towers, just like, yeah, that was the coolest podium, I would say, that I got an opportunity to stand on because um, you don't stand on a podium for finishing second at Indy. And then um, and then the, the one where we crossed the line first, they threw us out anyways at Indy at in 95. So you never right. got that one anyhow. But, it, but all that being said, probably the podium that meant the most to me, and I didn't realize it until it actually happened during the day and on the drive home, was standing on the podium with my son, Michael, at Mostport, winning a GT2, the class that we were running in that three-hour race when we drove for Chris Pfaff in the, in the touring car, BMW touring car. And I thought about it afterwards, or they called us up, we're standing there. I'm standing there, I'm standing there going, I'm standing beside my son how cool is this, you know? And, um, yeah, because he had gone up and test with Steve Borlotti a couple of times and what have you. I was, had way too much going on, never, uh, and I knew the track, obviously, anyways, most sports. So, yeah, I, um, yeah, that was probably the the, the neatest podium for sure. Um, you yeah, know, but I, um, you know, and I think that uh, when you look at it, um, neat moment, certainly the, we think about Daytona, Le Mans, indianapolis i mean three places that you want to stand the podium there's no real podium obviously at indy but uh certainly the coolest thing team wise um i think i realized when i got to the audi factory team when i went to their factory in ingerslad that um i walked in there and saw all the cars all the engines in the in shop the amount of technicians and mechanics and white cokes and stuff like that i'm just going okay wow I uh, you know I couldn't even understand how that was. Um, Stuckey and I did a test for Audi uh, later that year uh, in the fall because they were looking at running full time in IMSA starting in 1990. So I went over to Europe and we went to the south of France and did a week of testing to just run engines and gearboxes and stuff like that. We started in the morning at nine and then uh, they had a big sliding seat because he's six six and I'm five seven and. Um, and then, um, so it was him and I. And every day we'd start and then come in. It wasn't a pit stop. They'd go and check the tires and all the stuff. And the next guy would get in. It wasn't a big delay, but we ran up until lunchtime. And we did that on the fourth day. We actually had a uh, gearbox failure and it was in two o'clock-ish in the afternoon. So he said, oh, we're going to be done for the day. You guys can go back to the hotel. So we went back to the hotel and then talking about driving along with somebody in a rental car, what do you want to hold on to what's going on? <laughs> that was another story. And, um, I, uh, and then we went back and we did five days of testing there. And so I really thought that, um, you know, I was going to run for the Audi factory in, uh, in, uh, 1990 and, um, cause that was offered. We were in discussions about that starting at Daytona and, uh, and then, you know, we had those discussions late in the year about going and running with McKenzie full-time and then obviously I wanted to do the IndyCar thing. So that's why that ended up happening at that point in time, but, um, you know, just there doing the uh, testing with um, at Hawkingheim, then doing the stuff with uh, at the racetrack with um, Audi Germany, uh, those guys there, and then um, you know, just look maybe think about how do you compete against a Penske You know, that's that was the mm-hmm. thing that was in my mind. And then when I went to uh, the, the Porsche factory team, uh, being at Stuttgart and then being at Le Mans, um, it just gave me a real understanding about. If you were able to be competitive in IndyCar back in that era when Penske had his own chassis, he did all the development on the Goodyear tires because it was the only tire at that point in time. So when you got your Lola or March uh, and you start the season, you got tires that were tuned around the Penske chassis and it took you races, you know, months before you can figure out what in the world you need out of your car hopefully be even competitive. So if you were competitive back in that era and you were able to stand the podium or win races, I mean, that was, I look back on it now, it's probably more special than I thought it was at the time, quite frankly. Mm. Um, but that, you know, we, we just think about the level of the Penske team. And since then, when I was doing television, I've actually been to um, uh, Penske's shop in uh, North Carolina that he has a 430,000 square foot old Kubota okay. factory uh tractor factory or whatever it was and uh the reason i was there is that um uh rusty wallace was doing tv with us for one year in single seater stuff in indycar because he's mm-hmm. going to be on the nascar program the following year so they had to get him in, ingrained in, in television so he could understand what's going on so he came and, and spent a year with us and uh, after the Watkins Glen race we went back and we jumped on rusty's jet and we went back to north carolina we we're going to hang out for a couple of days and then um uh, we went over to uh, we saw Rusty's shop and what have you. It's funny the guys all, all of their airplanes all in the Concord Airport. Uh, they don't drive from the Concord Airport back to their shop or something like that. All the all the shops have these big heliports sitting out front. It's Only a 25 minute drive here. I mean, it's really not a bad thing, okay? And the, it's countryside, is beautiful, right? But you wouldn't yeah. want to drive it, right? So then you get out of the jet, you get in the helicopter, you blah, blah blah blah, like that over there, and you land right at the race shop and everything like that. And then your car's sitting there waiting for you to go, and you know, whatever the whole deal is. Had I got a big chuckle out of that. And uh, but anyways, we went over to Penske's shop, and then I walked in there, I was just like, oh my god, oh my god, you know, that was. They have uh, the NASCAR stuff on one side. They're running a Porsche team at that side. That time, way back then, if you can recall, and then they had the IndyCar stuff, and they had uh, electric cars for every class for every series to practice pit stops and pit stops in the back of the building at that time. And I think it's probably pretty common for the height of walls at road courses today, but back then you used to have you know, uh, wall height that um, Detroit might be different than Long Beach or what have you, by a couple inches, what have you. They'd have different height walls because you had to jump over them at that point in time. There's nothing unthought about with that team. And then the cameras and all that sort of stuff for all pit stops and uh, the workout room, the fitness room and all that sort of stuff. I mean, and so that's, I sort of got a feeling about what you were competing against. And then I was retired, obviously, because I was doing television. And then I got to see Penske's outfit and yeah, I mean now all the other ones around it—Andretti's down the street and Chips down the street—and I mean everybody's raised to that level today. But uh, you know, gone are the days of—and uh, that's why it's probably impressive for your Dale Coins of the world to have such great events that they have or great runs that they have. But um, yeah, I mean it's—it's it's, you know it's one of those things. If you hadn't seen all that sort of stuff when you're trying to get into it, you probably just worries and go, "It ain't gonna work," you know. So. I guess to be naive is probably a good thing still when you're doing this business for 10, 15 years, just as you were when you're beginning it, quite frankly. Yeah. Right. It's
1: tremendous. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I guess before I let you go, you, you know, you're so, you're so immersed um, in the, the F3 stuff and, and you haven't left motorsports your entire career. So you've seen, you've seen so many decades and from, you know, so many different angles. <sighs> What advice do you have for, you know, and I'm sure you give it out every weekend at the track. What advice do you have for young guys who, who want to make a living racing, you know, um, whether it be guys who have family money or guys who are weekend to weekend, but their goal is, you know, to be a professional race car driver?
0: And you just hit the term right there. Uh, if you want to make a living out of this, you need to be a professional. And professional is an easy word to say, sometimes very difficult to follow in the footsteps of being professional. When I say that, you know, we have three races per weekend for each class. And I tell them beginning of the season that, you know, your qualifying may go or it may not go as you want to go. You will sit down and come up with some form of a strategy. Uh, It doesn't matter if it's our F4 or F3 and FR before, uh, more so probably more on the F3 and FR sides. Uh, but I said, you know, you're going to come up with a strategy and just be prepared when the lights go out because we do standing starts. It probably won't be as discussed. The key thing is that you can't get frustrated. And the biggest thing I say to them all the time is that you are now in a car that weighs 1,450 pounds or 1,480 pounds. And, and um, you know, you're now doing a 30-minute race. And uh, with a heavy car, you're not driving a 300-pound or a 325-pound go-kart for 12 minutes. OK, right. that's, uh, you know, it's not that physical. And, you know, when you turn into a turn in a go-kart, if you're not where you want to be, you just give it some English, move it around or what have you. And by the time you get the apex, you're all good. And, you know, you can make the thing change on a dime, as I always say. Uh, with a race car, what happens at the apex is really depicted from turning. And if, if you don't have it right, then chances are you're missing the apex. You're doing something incorrect, You're going to drive off the road at the exit. I will tell you that when, uh, you know, all these drivers start, the biggest thing is that they drive off the exit constantly because Mm. they just, you know, turn in too soon, not understanding exactly what the uh, car is uh, going to do to them. So it's actually interesting to to continue watching. I love to see the progression from race one, weekend one, race one, all the way through races, race two, race three. When we get to weekend three, when they're now in their ninth race, um, it's really fun to see. And I just had uh, in town last night, a, a father and son that they have their own team and they're running. He ran F4. He's now running uh, F3. And they're in here getting some work done at the uh, carbon shop. And, um, you know, I told this young lad last night, his name's Hayden Bowlesby, Great family. I said, man, I'm still a fan because I'm standing upstairs and I've got all my monitors and what have you. But we get to a track like VIR, you know, Virginia International Raceway, where you know you've got the upper S's and all that, and the racetrack's great. And we've got a drone for our for our streaming. And I stand there, you know, watching the races and all the monitors, and our drone's going, and I'm seeing you guys all go through it like this and move. And I go, I've been there, I've done that. I mean, I know what that feels like, and I feel so cool for you guys to know what you're experiencing so i said you know it's it's fun but the other side of it too is that you when i say professional as i said to you a while ago that you breathe and sleep this on the track and then you need to be professional off the track because if you're not at some point in time in today's world, you're going to get captured and it's going to be on a video and you lose your sponsorship and you're done with because there's lots of other people ready to take your position right and and it's self-inflicting from the same side the other side of it too is that When you're driving off the track, like I said, like they invariably do, and I watch it all the time, it's usually the same corner that somebody has a problem with, and they drop one wheel off, then they drop two wheels off, and then maybe a couple laps later, they try to fix it, they don't do a good job, they drop all four wheels off, now they're passed by three people. And my message to them all the time is like, great, take a deep breath, it's not go-karts, you're not going to go up to the next turn and pass those three guys back again. Because if you try that, then I'm generally coming to pick you up because you're usually yeah. in a, a gravel trap somewhere. So the whole thing is like, let's slow it down. And then I've now, when I arrived here a couple of years ago, had to change the culture with the teams also. I told the teams, you are just as responsible for what's going on as a track, as the drivers. You guys have all been doing this for a long time, just like I have. I'm, I'm in there when I joined this program and started running. I'm looking around there and there's guys been doing this as long as I've been. There's been guys that used to work on teams that I've had. And I go, you need to be on the radio telling them, just sit back there. Just wait. How's your tires? What's going on? Let's go back and look at the video and say, well, that's not a corner you should be trying this on. You know, today you're going to be seventh because that's where you're fastest. Don't try to be third. And I tell them this all the time. I always mention if I had dollar every time I mentioned Scott Dixon's names throughout the year, I'd be wealthy. Simply from the fact I go, you hear Dixon say it all the time. If, um, if it's a third place car today and I'm, I was happy with third okay he's yep. not trying to take a third place car and get fourth, you're not trying to take a 10th place car and get second. And I and now, um, you know, and even teams are coming to me, told me this last year, which is a big shout out to Patrick Woodstock. All the other teams are telling me they're taking racing videos and putting it together to show their drivers to go watch Patrick. And I'm on board, I, I can't share, uh, I mean, sometimes you see Patrick's on board video, but I have all the video cards because all cars have video cards on them. I take them back and look at them if I have to, or we have our stewards go through them. There's races where um, uh, Patrick comes up to cars, a couple of cars there. He probably could have drafted and shot out and got one guy, but it's going to be confrontational going into the turn. You hear him audibly take his foot off the gas. He sits back there and idles and follows it into the next turn. And then he'll wait a half a lap or a lap. That's the hardest thing to teach people is to be patient, to be Scott Dixon patient. And that is the thing that I try to I show videos on all our driver's meetings. I do 10 or 12 pages of driver's notes I send out for every event written by me first person. Like you're sitting in the seat for all these new tracks that kids go to because especially at four, 75% of the kids every year are fresh to car racing, coming out of carts. Right. So I tell them, Road America, uh, come out of pit lane. Here's how you merge through your pit box and out into tra- transfer lane, into high-speed lane, onto the racetrack. This is what you do. This is why you do it. All the stuff way it's, it's a big document I send out to everybody at the beginning of it. And then I have PowerPoint presentations in the driver's meetings. It's all about teaching them. Some people catch on to it very quickly. Uh, some people go through a bit of a learning curve where they'll end up against the guardrail and parents will be uh, fixing the cars. You know, I mean, you can get away with a couple thousand dollars in a corner or something like that, depending on what's going on. Uh, Some stuff can be five or seven. And I tell them that, um, you know, you guys need to be respectful of everybody else that's around you. Number one, respectful of uh, you being here because you're sponsored. Your parents are paying for this. You need to say thank you to your parents all the time for making you do this, no matter how your budget is within the family. And then if you go out and you crash a car, you need to be getting your parents because a lot of them are 15 years of age, or if they're older, you can go drive it. You need to go get your uh, mechanics, a bunch of pizzas, come back, give them pizzas that night and feed them and clean all the parts that they're putting back together because yep. that's what race car drivers do. And I tell them the story about, you know, Scott Dixon, uh, you know, even at Indy uh, and you know, the big story about Dixon and Frankiti going through the Taco Bell drive through years ago. You, did you hear that story?
1: No, they got no.
0: Well, my point is. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah well, my point yeah, is, yeah. even Scott Dixon gets in his car, goes down the road to 16th Street at uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway to buy a ton of food for all his mechanics, and then right. and he was first mechanics because I'm sure Scott Dixon doesn't eat Taco Bell, and then <laughs> uh, and then he was getting it and to take it back. Him and Frank and and uh, yeah, so they're waiting in line and at the Taco Bell about a half mile from Indianapolis Motor Speedway, sunroof open and. Everybody knows the story. It wasn't well publicized, but it's out there. And they're sitting there, and then some kids come along with a revolver, put it in the top of their head, and just say money, wallet, watches, and all that sort of stuff, you know. And uh, yeah, so I mean, but my point is, is that he's going out to buy them food. I'm sure that that Taco Bell's now been closed, by the way. <laughs> so, right. But uh, yeah, but I mean, the point is, is that you need to be respectful, and you're respectful whether you are. It's just starting out in a four. Or be respectful, like Scott Dixon is, who's won indie at multiple mm. championships and respects everything that his guys do for him. You don't do it yourself, you know. The right, key
1: right. Yeah. Um. You, you know, you've you've clearly been, and and I haven't seen anything to the contrary. You've been such professional your entire career, and you know, no one no one's a professional when they're you know a, a kid or a, a teenager, and a lot of that, you know. Mm. A, a lot of the reaction, potential negative reaction, you know, for for racing is is huge when something doesn't go your way. Um, you know, and racing, I always say, is is one of the biggest character builders there is because, it, you know, it's stripped from you in, in a in a moment or in a second. Was the was passing the, the pace car or, you know, was there another bigger moment that was that was a, a you know, a big character-building moment where you just had to suck it up and and just, again, be a professional?
0: Probably, uh, I'm sure there's more. Um, you know, probably, um, although I didn't throw cars away all that often, I mean, crashed when things broke, you know, like uh, the rear wing at uh, at um, Brazil. And then when I got taken out at uh, Indy uh, in 01, which I would retired in 2000 in 01, I went back because I did all the development on the Nissan Infinity engine all throughout the winter. And I knew that we had a good piece. And I thought, you know, we were gonna have a really good shot at this. Um, but you know, that was a bit of a disbelief. And even though you and I knew when I crashed that one, it was like Brazil. Brazil I couldn't feel waist down and the crash in India I couldn't feel waist down. I knew something was going on, absolutely for sure. Um, but you know, you wanna scream. You just are so damn mad. Um, but you know, then something else comes involved, like, okay, we got more of a bit of a further problem. That's not the car running. It's like, you know, something else with your body with Indy, uh, with the pace car scenario, you know, we're, we geared about 62 miles an hour. I think it is for first gear on those cars or something like that. You know, when right. you have to, when you have to clutch it, cause you're chugging along, the guy's supposed to be doing, you know, 60, 80, supposed to then get up to hundred miles an hour. I mean, that it was just irritating how the, the issue went through that whole whole event uh, cause it wasn't a professional pace car driver. Now, after right. that, they turned around, put professionals in it because of that scenario. So, you know, maybe it was good that, you know it changed the way that pace car drivers were selected but not great from our standpoint. Um, right. No, I guess for me, um, you know, we were very calm because, um, you know, I got down there cause he had pace car gone but he wasn't obviously doing hundred miles an hour. So when I got accelerating, And, you know, we're paid to put our foot on the gas. I mean, you're paid to go fast. That's why they hire you, don't hire you because you're going slow. And, um, you know, so he's up and he's gone around like that. And then you you wait, you do your thing, you go through your procedure. And then I got down to four. It's like, oh, must be having a problem, which invariably he did have a problem. But because he was, you know, from all the stuff that you you hear. So anyways, passed him and never thought about it. Okay, he's gone, what have you. Certainly, you're not going to go take your foot off the gas because you collect everybody behind you. And oh yeah. It's just like you race, you know, you're, you're responsible knowing for yourself. As I tell the drivers today, you're responsible for everybody else that's around you, you know? Um, and then, uh, yeah, so we got going and I don't even know how many laps it was from the end. And then Steve Horn came on the radio and said, uh, Scott get a report. They're going to, um, penalize you for passing the safety car. And I said, Steve, I go, he had a problem. Yeah. You know, I'm not. I and mean, so anyways, he comes back on a length later. He goes, uh, uh, they're saying you have to pit, uh, for passing the safety car. They're giving you a penalty. And I went along there and very calmly, I just pushed the button, the steering wheel. And I said, um, Steve, I'm not coming in. And then he very calmly got on there and pushed the button. He said, uh, okay, I'll see you at the end because it doesn't make sense to come in because if you had an argument or if you had a fight, and I learned this early days in carding is yeah. that, um, they're not going to go put you from 14th where they finally put me and movie up to first, but if no. at first, and then you stand there with an argument, then, um, you know, in the end result. Now, in the end result, they have, uh, the Stewart's decision is non-protestable. So they wouldn't <clears> hear a protest from us or anything of that nature. So, okay, so it wasn't a very good evening. It wasn't a very good week because the very next week we went on to uh, Milwaukee, but in all that time frame, and I had so many people call and go, uh, we'll pay for the attorneys, we'll do this, we'll do that. You need to sue them and all what have you. And I'm thinking, you know, make you wonder about it at that point in time. I thought, okay, well, okay, I know how to get around this place. I know what I need to make a car work around here and uh, I'll come back. I'll come back. Right. You no, know, I'll. it's fine. It's just, you know, and I, I wasn't the team owner, I guess, in the point. If I was a team owner, I guess maybe I would have thought about it differently. I'm a hired driver. If the team decide to go ahead mm-hmm. and lodge a protest, then I'm going to do whatever the team does at that point in time like i said so it really was it my decision no because the team's decision was i happy with it absolutely not i mean it was furious but you know you're not going to stand there and 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 throw a temper tantrum or do whatever the whole scenario is because you're representing your sport and um you know at that point i feel like i'm representing canada it's obviously you mm. know, jacques villeneuve that was second so then you sit there and you go okay if i do this then you know, the two Canadians are against each other and this goes to court as it they've been back in the Mario Andretti Unzer Day as it was back in the court thing. You know, and then ultimately years later, a couple years later in three, between the scenario with Paul, Paul Tracy, and then with El yeah. well, that one ended up going to court, you know, it took a long time as it no, it wasn't it wasn't overturned. So um, yeah, probably disbelief and, and a couple of things like number one, um, telling you that. You know, and it sounds strange, but you're going along at 235 miles an hour and you're having this conversation, you know, still having to turn your laps in at the high speed that you're doing right 235, high speed. And obviously, whatever ad you're doing at that point in time to 24 or 28 or something like that. I can't remember. And then so you're having this conversation and you can't let it play in your mind because you've got like a six or eight inch window going to turn one that you need to get right every time to get through the turn. Cause it ain't working any other way. OK, so it's not like you're you can dwell on it a whole lot and uh so then the thing that probably two things that actually probably really came forward with me is coming around the last turn last lap and not getting the checkered flag now that, mm. okay this is real this is happening and then you come in and then you know we always say that in the last lap at indy the driver wants to make uh, five left hand turns because you want to come down the pit lane and make a last the left hand turn at the victory circle so f- Fifth left, right? So that's what you Okay. And then, uh, and maybe it was me, but maybe it was probably just the way they always do it uh the guy that was actually in uh, and i guess i'm sure he probably thought i was going to try and make him turn left and go into victory circle but he was pretty much animated when i came down there in the yellow shirts you know they're standing in pit lane and they go to direct you on and all that sort of stuff he made the biggest motion like make sure that you are going straight and he had all the you know the hands flailing and all that sort of stuff he was going to let me turn left in the victory circle which i wasn't doing anyways but yeah so those were the two uh, instances where i sort of looked at that and I thought, okay this is this is a problem. Let's go see what we got. So and then I pulled in and had the conversation with the team and it was really up to the team. Obviously you went to the interview room and went through all that. But uh yeah, huge disappointment. But you know, you you get on and you just go to the next event. That's all you can really do. You know, it's crazy yeah. as it
1: is. Right. No, and I think that's a great lesson because there, you know, you can see that scenario happening with you know, name and name a guy who might have reacted differently. Right. You know, someone who would have pulled into victory lane, someone who would have thrown their helmet. And, you know, I think it's a great lesson that you just, you know, you suck it up and you move on well, to the next
0: one. I guess I, I use that a little bit as a teaching example, but I tell all our drivers now, male, female, and you know, our youngest are 15 coming in and there are, you know, we've probably got 20, uh, you know, discounting the uh, master's class, which is, you know, we got guys 35 and over in the F3 car, um, you know, they are 21 to 23 oldest generally, you know, and that's more so in F3, but, you know, and I use that and I tell them all the time is that, um, you know, the thing that you realize is that you probably won't have three perfect races in the weekend. You might have a great first race. You could be in the podium. You could win. You could go from 15th to seventh, uh, the second race, you might not get past turn one. The motors could stop. You could get a flat. You can get hit from behind. Something that has nothing to do with you. Um, and then, uh, you know, you can make your way back up and have a good third race. Or you can have three races where you have three podiums each weekend. Pretty darn good. Um, you know, and if you've got a win and um, then podiums, it's pretty good. I mean, there will be weekends where it's going to go really well, weekends where it's not going to go very well at all. And you need to understand that. And I tell them all the time, it's not only a lesson for you driving your race car. I used to say this to all our kids who all played high-level sports, um, you know, whether it was hockey and and, um, golf with my son at a high level and then Michael with his karting and the car racing and then uh, our daughter riding horses all her life. um, You know, it's really, you can be prepared as well as you can be prepared. You have no control what the event is going to give you. And I tell the drivers the same thing all the time. But what you are responsible for is doing a good professional job in making sure that you are not putting any belts at harm. And, mm-hmm. you know, cause I've taken licenses away. Um, I've actually taken licenses away for the whole year. We've suspended people for the remainder of that weekend and following weekends. Um, I've thrown fathers out um, and not, not allowed in the property. Um, there's no place for what I call, as we talked about earlier for that I found when I got involved with hockey and other stuff with my kids with sports. You're, you're you're you know, you're driving in F four hundred twenty five 125 miles an hour in F three 165 miles an hour. They we're not doing that. We are absolutely yeah. not doing that. And and I tell them all the time that um, you know, you can tell me about how disappointing we were there. I get it. I've lived it. I understand it. Whether it's events like this or whether it's uh Indianapolis you know, and I explained to them what's going on. I explained to the parents, I go, I'm compassionate to what you're telling me. Cause I understand fully, but how you react is how you're going to be graded, not standing here and throwing your helmet. Cause if you're going to do that, then you are out of control and it's easy for us to turn around and say, you're done. You're not doing yeah. this. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Scott, I really appreciate you making the time for this. Um, this was great. People are yeah. going to love it.
0: That's been fun. It takes you back down, um, a little bit to uh really gives me a retrospective of how long i have actually been doing this but uh, yeah it's still fun i mean you still enjoy going to racetracks and um uh, yeah and just seeing you know there's a lot of it's all about relationships um it's neat that there's a lot of people that um i've worked with in the past or been in the paddocks and what have you and other teams that are now slowing down a little bit don't want to be on the circuit you know because India car is pretty crazy right now and um you know they've come involved in the series that we do because you've got seven event weekends um you know although sometimes we have 18 or 20 races in the series total obviously um and then i've got a um uh, a guy that worked on uh, my bruma's prototype car bruma's Porsche prototype car I drove with <laughs> Hurley haywood and uh and jc french jean French son uh, at Daytona, um, that worked on that team that's actually on our staff. So yeah, cool. it's just fun. It's, it's just, it's an industry that, um, I wasn't built to be in an office nine to five, I pretty much know that. And that, that became truthful with my son, Michael, who was brilliant minded in, in, in uh, business and accounting. He's the one with the accounting and insurance for his management degrees. And, uh, when he came home the fourth year of university at Christmas and said, uh, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm not could chase a driving career, but I pretty much know. I don't think I want to be doing accounting. I love this stuff, but I don't want to be in an office. And we mm-hmm. said to him, "Okay, you need to decide what you're going to do." He said, "Well, I've already decided. I'm going to become a pilot." So that's that was his thing. So maybe everybody in the family sort of not cut to be sitting there in an office. I mean, it's different things for different people, I guess. So um, yeah, we keep doing it. I'm excited about coming to Mosport. On uh, yeah. Day weekend, with our F four and our F three FR, and then obviously Trans Am's part of our um, our ownership group, so we're up there with the Trans Am cars. Uh, anxious to bring Trans Am up there because it's been a while. Obviously, close to Ron Fellow's heart because uh, Trans Am champion, and Ron's at a lot of our races because he's been helping Patrick Woodstoff. So I do get a chance to, uh, see Ron and obviously Ron was sponsored by McKenzie. When I was sponsored by McKenzie, we traveled with the company a fair amount with his wife, Linda and my wife, Leslie. So, uh, yeah, it's fun. You know, you get to now hang out again and, and, uh, yeah, friendships keep going. So it's fun.
1: Yeah, no, very good. I'm going to work, I'm going to work hard all, uh, the next couple months to try and try and do that TA2 race. I think that's uh, that's a rare opportunity to yeah. race a Trans Am car at sports
0: Those things are, uh, that class has grown. And you know, our Trans Am series now, honestly, is almost become like a junior NASCAR series. You know, mm-hmm. Brent Cruz, who won the championship. All these guys are getting involved in there now. That are sponsored by Toyota or Chevrolet or what have you. And they're being put over there in Trans Am to learn those cars because they're very similar to NASCAR's. And they get to learn their road cross craft because they've been growing up on ovals. And uh, it's interesting because I've been doing the MAV TV television shows over there. And it's interesting to watch. Um, you know, you're starting to see a lot of NASCAR influence there. They're sending their engineers. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's grown a lot. So when you're getting a mm. field of 40 or 45 TA2 cars, pretty tough company. It's, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, but the, the biggest thing uh, for you is home track advantage. Um, you know, I just I was talking with Miles the other day. Uh, getting prepared to get up there and, um, you know, definitely getting a Thursday test program set for our guys, both Trans Am and then obviously with uh, F4 and then F3FR because of, um, you know, most ports, it's not an easy circuit. You know? mm-hmm. So, yeah, you've got a huge advantage knowing the place as it is.
1: Yeah, no, that'll be cool. Um, before I let you go, one, uh, one cool piece is Georgetown go-kart track is on the same road as the shop here.
0: Oh, no kidding.
1: Yeah, oh, it's okay. just up up, up the way there. So if you crawl through some guy's backyard, it's you can still see the timing and scoring height.
0: Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because that track you used to go through and then, golly, you um, went down the main street and we talked about the start-finish line. You came in there and I think you did a left and a right and then you went into the forest in the back section. I remember that because we used to run at night and it was so much colder going back there and then you'd come out of the forest and then there'd be some lights and what have you used to use a yellow visor at that point in time then you come over a bit of a brow and go down back around and what have you yeah because it was back down towards the main road but yeah that was stacking no kidding still there not cool
1: if you guys enjoyed this podcast share it with some friends hit subscribe on the youtube hit subscribe on spotify and apple see you guys next week